Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Recently, the Miami Herald reported that a large portion of Americans, quote, doubt democracy and view political violence as acceptable. This should not be surprising considering the institutional left, who currently rules us, has been putting everything they've got into making this happen, and succeeding since they now control nearly every major institution in our country, from education to media to large corporations to public libraries to people who count votes. The results come from a poll from the University of Virginia's Center for Politics, which surveyed 2,000 voters last month. Among their sobering findings were that nearly 4 in 10 Americans now believe it is acceptable to use violence to stop political opponents. By the way, Biden supporters are, of course, more likely to think violence is acceptable. Meanwhile, almost half of Americans also think the government should restrict, quote, offensive political views. Again, more Biden voters want to restrict, but a third of Trump voters now agree since they've been censored for five years now and probably think the other side should live under the same rules. It gets worse. Seven in 10 Americans now believe catastrophic harm will come to the country if the other side ever wins an election again. In fact, four in 10 voters say democracy is no longer a viable system, that America should explore, quote, alternative forms of government. Finally, nearly three in 10 American voters believe elections should be suspended altogether in time of crisis. You would expect election skepticism from Trump supporters since the last election was so magnificently secure, but even a quarter of Biden voters think elections should be suspended in crisis. It's worth noting that our elite and their pet journalists are actually very good at inventing crises, so you can do the math on that one. So what's next? What's next is the anger and division will keep growing because our ruling elite wants it. They want us to fight each other, so they have free reign to pillage and enslave us. There is, of course, a solution for enough people to wake up that we change course and restore the tolerance and mutual respect that characterized America's political culture for centuries before the institutional left went to war. This is not as hard as it sounds. In a separate poll, Pew Research found that just one in seven Americans trust the government to do the right thing while trust is plunging across the board in those captured institutions, media, schools, even the military. So if enough people disbelieve the totalitarian elite, we could yet turn it around. Having said it is a slow and frustrating process, convincing grandma that CNN is no longer news and that the science ain't what it seems. But one by one, people are waking up, and when they do, they often reject the entire package, the division, the anger, the 15-minute hates. And what if we fail? What if voters simply won't wake up until they get hit on the head with a rock? Then we could be in for some very difficult years ahead. We could even see the breakup of the United States. That same University of Virginia poll found fully one-third of Americans now want to break up into blue and red halves, presumably in hopes they can liberate some of the institutions that have been thoroughly captured by the totalitarian left or if they swing the other way, in hopes those same totalitarians can take over the rest of their lives. A few days ago, SEC Chair Gary Gensler gave a speech saying a financial crisis is, quote, nearly unavoidable unless we regulate AI. 
This is one of those rare scapegoat hostage combos. You see, if we have a financial crisis, which people like Gary in theory prevent, then it is clearly because we didn't let them censor ChatGPT. Meanwhile, for anybody skeptical about giving an authoritarian regime control over a tool with enormous potential to shape thought and expression so they can censor, surveil, and imprison political dissidents, the response is, give us AI or we break the banks. The backstory here is that governments around the world, including the SEC, are aware that the global financial system is teetering on the edge of an abyss, caused not by ChatGPT, but by tens of trillions of free money pumped into an already insolvent financial system. Some of those trillions were printed by central banks. They literally type zeros into Excel sheets and buy stuff. But most of it was magicked into existence by Wall Street, by fractional reserve banks who are essentially franchised money printers of the central banks who stand ready to bail them out when they screw up. They're actually quite open about this, by the way. That's the lender of last resort function that ever since Badgett's 1873 book Lombard Street has stood as the bedrock of central planning, a permanent bailout of insolvent fractional reserve money printers. Of course, people like Gary Gensler don't blame themselves for our Ponzi financial system. Rather, they blame the plebs, the stockholders, the investors, the traders, the aggregators who make up the investing world and who, like bacteria on a decomposing corpse, have to digest what the central bankers print. So controlling AI for them becomes a sort of updated version of John Maynard Keene's Animal Spirits, a question of controlling the plebs, base instincts, and emotional overreactions that break financial markets despite the very careful prudence of our ruling regulators. Of course, what's really happening is unregulated speech might help the masses see that the system is actually insolvent, which it is. And that would, of course, be a disaster for the people who made it insolvent, such as Gary Gensler. That then dovetails perfectly with the desperate effort by governments around the world to control and censor broader speech. Because the Brexit-Trump combination of 2016 made them realize that the masses are done with the center-left globalist consensus, it can't compete in the arena of ideas that they must censor lest the masses understand what they're doing and put them out of a job or worse. So what is next? What's next is we are indeed likely to see a financial crisis and it won't have anything to do with chat GPT. The history of central banking says they always break something when they hike big. And today's rate hikes have been the biggest in 50 years, ever since the catastrophic 1970s. So yes, a financial crisis is nearly unavoidable. Meanwhile, they will keep hunting for scapegoats, ideally scapegoats that increase their power and let them dodge blame for the financial system they broke. Free speech, including AI-based analytical tools, will be critical to maintaining our ability to see and to communicate what they are actually doing. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. You hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. 
Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. Transitory inflation just got a big extension as the IMF came out with its latest global predictions, now saying that global inflation will last for years. Specifically, they forecast that 2023 inflation will come in at almost 7% worldwide, and it won't get much better in 2024 at almost 6% worldwide. Note, that would make it five years and counting for this very transitory inflation of ours. Also note, the IMF has consistently underpredicted inflation. They work with central banks, after all. So it could be even worse. To go with all that inflation, the IMF is now also predicting slow growth worldwide. In other words, we are looking at stagflation on a global level. With growth barely keeping up with population in the rich countries, averaging just 1.5% for 2023 and falling even lower in 2024. They predict particular weakness in Germany, which is deindustrializing fast, Italy, which is a financial basket case, the UK, which is barely keeping afloat, and for Japan, which seems to be ramping up its heretofore leisurely descent into oblivion. The anemic growth, of course, is tied to the inflation. After printing so many trillions to buy lockdowns, the world central bank cartel chose to crush the private economy instead of turning down the government spending. The problem is crushing the productive economy is not doing the trick. With inflation now rising again, so just three months ago, for example, the IMF was predicting 5.2% global inflation next year, and now they are closer to 6. So every bump in inflation means more strangled credit down the pike, taking growth and jobs down with it, and deepening global stagflation. Now, given the IMF works for governments, naturally they do not blame government spending nor the money printers. Instead, they obediently blame the victim. So tight labor markets, meaning workers asking for a raise, or inflation expectations, meaning workers, companies, and households raising prices to survive inflation. So what's next? What's next is inflation is increasingly looking like it will stay for years. It has already gone from a two-week visit to moving in and redecorating the living room, all whilst organizations like the IMF are drooling at their chance to make it worse. How? In the very same report confessing that government-fueled and central bank finance spending is driving the world into stagflation, the IMF lists out recommendations filled not with controlling spending in central banks, but with central planner fantasies, about yet more inflation-pumping government spending. These central planner utopias include a renewed push on the green transition that replaces cheap fossil fuels with comically expensive renewables, along with plans for potentially trillions going to, quote, increase resilience and improve food security, which are both code for handing trillions to poor countries. Both would naturally raise inflation and slow economic growth, but let no crisis go to waste. In short, our ruling clowns are finally admitting they broke it, that we are in for years now of stagflation, and their solution is to break it some more. As for the rest of us who pay their salaries and suffer their policies, expect slower growth and higher inflation for years to come. Last time we were here in the 1970s, we got lucky with Paul Volcker, who finally fixed it with drastic rate hikes. This time, we could be waiting a lot longer. 
The Biden administration wants to massively grow the World Bank to compete with China. As always with Washington's galaxy of taxpayer fleecing international organizations, hold on to your wallet. The other day, the Financial Times of London published a breathless write-up of the Biden administration's new plan to expand the World Bank by tens of billions of dollars per year. That money, of course, comes from you. Biden's cronies dress it up in sweet nothings about global inequality, but everybody knows why they are doing it. China. For years now, China has been eclipsing the World Bank when it comes to bribing and bailing out third world countries, lending out $125 billion every year versus a puny 40 for the World Bank and friends. To put that in perspective, Ukraine got $100 billion in two years, that's 50 per year, while the World Bank is giving out 40 every single year, which Biden wants to increase, and has been handing out money since 1944. Now, the World Bank, together with the IMF, were originally set up in 1944 to lend money to poor countries. In theory, to help those countries get rich, but in reality, so the U.S. could control them. Pretty much what China is doing today. In theory, that money would be repaid, but of course, these are government loans, so they are defaulted and the billions written off. Converting the World Bank from colonial enterprise into just another money siphon from middle-class Americans to third-world dictators. Enter China, which decided it liked the original colonialism idea, so they ramped up spending. The Chinese were popular since, as the Wall Street Journal puts it, quote, they don't ask awkward questions about corruption, human rights, or environmental impacts. Or, as Larry Summers colorfully put it, China comes to Africa with a checkbook, the U.S. comes with a lecture. Final twist, Chinese banks actually started pulling back lending last year because they are rediscovering that political loans to third world dictators don't get repaid. You may as well kiss those hundreds of billions goodbye. U.S. taxpayers, sadly, don't have a choice. The World Bank tells us how much to give them. So what's next? What's next is yet more trillions to failed international organizations like the World Bank on top of our permanent wars that seem to breed at this point. A few months ago, I did a video on the globalist push to hand out north of $5 trillion to third world dictators in the name of climate. So another $100 billion for the World Bank is chump change. They will be back for more. How to fix it? Simple. The U.S. should pull out of the entire 1944 order. The World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations. These were a bait and switch on the American people that put us in chains and siphons our wealth so woke ideology can be exported to Africa. There have been many empires in history, but it is hard to find one quite so stupid as today's American empire, which literally pays our tributaries, fleecing our own people at the behest of a tiny donor class and their pet third world dictators. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to MoneyMetals.com. A few days ago, the federal government released a blockbuster GDP report, so good in fact it sent stocks crashing before Jerome Powell came to the rescue with his sweet nothings. 
My colleague E.J. Antoni broke it down, and it turns out that like so much in the Biden era, the blockbuster is hollow on the inside, amounting to a tissue fire as households spend down savings and the federal government takes over yet another slab of the real economy. In raw numbers, Q3 real GDP jumped 4.9%, which is a very high number. But we can run an easy check by looking at the key driver of economic growth, which is real private fixed investment, meaning factories and durable things that make us richer down the line. Turns out those have actually been flat for a year and a half. Oddly enough, right around when GDP numbers started saying the recession had already started. In fact, residential investment is below pre-pandemic levels, signaling the housing shortages will continue. So where did the GDP blockbuster come from? Three things, inventories, government spending, and unsustainable consumer spending. Taking each, inventory is companies stocking up to avoid future inflation. And it made up fully 27% of GDP growth this past quarter, which is a very high figure. Of course, it adds to today, but it subtracts from tomorrow. A second big hunk of blockbuster was government spending. Fully one-fifth of growth last quarter was in federal spending, which government statisticians obediently count as wealth creation since that's who pays their salaries. That would mark the fifth quarter now that federal spending is growing faster than the real economy, which pays for it. The rest of the blockbuster was consumer spending. Now, that's normally a very good thing. But the problem is that spending is rising even as incomes fall, meaning people are running down savings and raising household debt. In fact, real disposable income actually fell again last quarter, despite that 4.9 blockbuster, bringing it down 1.6 trillion since those halcyon days when Joe Biden first mounted the presidency. So in short, we are borrowing from tomorrow. We are condemning another hunk of the real economy to the black hole of government waste, even as Treasury pumps out $500 billion of fresh debt this month alone. That would be a $6 trillion annualized rate, which sounded goofy until very recently. All that federal spending, of course, will continue driving inflation for years to come. So what's next? What's next is even the Fed doesn't seem to think this GDP number is real. Given that just days later, Jerome Powell hinted that rate hikes will end, which is odd considering inflation has doubled since the previous GDP report and is now cruising close to 4% and rising. That's actually the optimistic read. The other possibility is the Fed knows it is backed into a corner as soaring yields on the 10-year bonds suggest investors are getting very worried that maybe Uncle Sam won't repay its debts which are apparently growing by several fresh-faced trillions each and every year. In short, we've got an economy running warp speed on debt, while the Fed runs for the hills despite soaring inflation, which is kind of its one job. Frustratingly, all of this has a very easy solution, slash federal spending, which would bring down inflation, it would lower interest rates, and it would return trillions to households and small businesses who earned it. Of course, that's the one thing Washington will never do. Sovereign debt is eating the world, lining up the next financial crash that could make 2008 look like a picnic. So how did we get here? In short, over decades, governments and central banks deluded themselves into thinking that unlimited deficit spending financed by unlimited money printing is a free ride that they won't do what they've done for literally millennia, 
which has plunged the economy into stagflation. They are, of course, wrong. So the story begins in the 1970s when Nixon broke the gold standard, unleashing deficits around the world. But the latest chapter really starts in 2008, when central banks bailed out the financial system by printing trillions of dollars. At the time, everybody knew it would cause inflation, but it did not, because banks held on to the free trillions to plug their balance sheets. Central bankers concluded that the impossible was now possible. Meanwhile, a second useful myth was shattered by Japan, that national debt is deadly. Again, everybody knew that public debt above 100 or 125 percent of GDP would end the world. But Japan crossed that line 25 years ago, and pretty much nothing happened. Now, there are idiosyncratic reasons for Japan, and their economy has been slow, but the lesson was learned. If debt doesn't matter, deficits don't matter. Put those two together, and it was off to the races. Never mind that we have centuries of evidence that money printing causes inflation, and that countries always default when debt gets big enough. In fact, there have been 14 sovereign defaults since Japan crossed that magic line 25 years ago. But they learned the lessons they wanted to learn. Meanwhile, they put all of this into reality with COVID. To bribe voters into lockdowns, countries around the world printed roughly $10 trillion in deficits, dutifully financed by central bankers. Alas, this time was not different. Inflation did take off, which scared the central banks into pulling back at this point. This is now leaving those massive deficits to the private sector who are reaching their limit of what they can digest, leading them to start wondering if governments can actually handle that debt. The final piece of the crisis is the shrinking economy, because the main way central banks fight inflation is by choking off the private economy with interest rate hikes. Now, after 276 hikes worldwide, they have plunged essentially the entire world into stagflation. So the financial Ponzi is not only losing its key financier, central banks, it is now being built on a shrinking base. So what's next? What's next is it could take months, it could take years, but I think we are headed for a financial crisis because the drivers, federal spending and inflationary central banks, won't change unless we actually get a crisis, at which point it would take down thousands of banks, insurers, and pension funds, along with years of high inflation that would wipe out life savings and impoverished, especially older people who thought they were safe. It all looks very dire, but remember, we've been through a lot worse, and when the hard times come, men do get strong. For example, post-Civil War America looked like it was done. Half the country was flattened, and we were all going through hyperinflation. Yet the crisis concentrated voters' minds. Just 15 years later, the country had reestablished the gold standard, followed by 30 years of the most epic golden age in U.S. history, indeed in human history. So just 15 years from the end of the world to the greatest golden age. So don't lose hope. A storm is coming. There will be a lot of innocence. But we are building a beautiful world on the other side. A few days ago, the Japanese yen crashed past the psychologically important line of 150 yen to the dollar. This had been considered an unbreachable line by the Bank of Japan, their version of the Fed, but apparently they failed. This is giving rise to warnings that Japan could spark the next global financial crisis. So what's happening in Japan? In short, their zombie economy, fortified by extravagant levels of public spending at zero interest rates, means that investors can currently make roughly four to six times more investing in the US or Europe than in Japan. This is sucking trillions out of Japan, 
which means selling metric tons of yen for foreign currencies. So there's too many yen, meaning cheap yen. So far, this giant sucking sound has dropped the yen 20% against the euro, while it's lost almost a third against the US dollars since 2021. In fact, the yen is now the weakest since the bubble economy burst way back in the late 80s when Brian Adams was topping the charts. This is all a problem because it raises prices for Japan's imports, most notably energy, of which Japan imports nearly 100%, and food, where Japan imports roughly two-thirds of what it eats. In U.S. dollar terms, all of those are now 50% more expensive than before the fall of yen. Toss in industrial imports from ores and metals to machinery, which make everything more expensive for Japanese consumers. Now, Japanese household income has been flat for 25 years, so a 50% hike in prices is pretty rough. The problem is the solution to a weak yen is to raise interest rates to erode that four to six times gap. But the Bank of Japan cannot raise rates, partly because the Japanese economy is too weak, but mostly because Japan has built a turbocharged version of the debt trap that Washington is busy building for the rest of us. Public debt in Japan is currently 267% of GDP, which would translate into roughly $60 trillion in U.S. terms. To illustrate the problem, at the current target of 1% yield, roughly one quarter of Japan's government budget goes to debt service. But if the Bank of Japan raised rates to U.S. levels, so that would be about 5% on the long bond, debt service would become 125% of government spending. Of course, the rest of government still needs money from defense to highways, so call it a clean doubling. Now, Japan already takes a third of GDP in tax, and the top rate is 45%, so doubling tax revenue is impossible. You would be close to Soviet levels of government dominance. So what's next? What's next is Japan's slow-motion train wreck may be about to get a lot faster because inflation is finally rising. This is pushing both the government and the Bank of Japan to pump out yet more money. This could become a cycle where they pump out fresh money to defend rates and defend the yen, but that fresh money itself raises rates and crashes the yen because of future expectations on inflation. This market-driven rise in rates is already starting to happen here in the U.S., and we're at half of Japan's debt level. Japan has built itself a leviathan of debt, big enough that it could spark the global debt reckoning. On the bright side, it could warn Washington off the suicidal path it's currently taking. On the dark side, it will be brutal on the Japanese people and could spread sovereign debt contagion that makes 2008 look like a cakewalk. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.